while the kids are getting their blue bags out, I'm actually wondering if there's someone maybe under the age of 15 who would um, be brave enough to come out to this microphone up the front. And if you're comfortable reading, I'd like you to read Genesis chapter 1. Not the whole thing. <coughs> Let's go Genesis chapter 1. Just the first five verses. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Someone under the age of 15 who's comfortable enough to come up to this microphone and maybe Matt will adjust the mic if you need to or hold it or something. Have we got anyone under the age of 15 who would like to do that? Anyone under the age of 16? I see that hand, brother. Anyone under the age of six? Okay, great. You're a champion. You, know, you got them? Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated from the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and then there was a morning, one day. Brilliant. Fantastic. Thank you. And that's the word of the Lord. Amen. Yeah? Anyone know Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, off by heart? Yell it out if you do. What's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? Very good. In the beginning, if you didn't quite pick up the words in that absolute schmuzzle. No, very good. In the beginning, God created what? Heaven and earth. All right. Now, we're going through a series in 1 Corinthians, and you may be wondering, what on earth does Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, have to do with that? It was better than me leading with women be quiet in the church. <laughs> we're going to get to that one. And I also hope that by the time we finish, you might see the relevance of Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 5, to what we're going to be talking about today. Because I knew this day would finally come. And for those who have been reading ahead, you may have been waiting to see how we address today's passage. Because if you haven't read ahead... And if you can remember that last week we spoke about the controversial topics of tongues and prophecy, well, we're about to tackle an even more controversial topic in this world, which is the voice of women in the gathered church in particular. And I'll leave with that because I thought it would be safe to assume that most people would think that today's passage that we're going to read, that's what it's all about. It's all about what women can do and can't do. But I don't think it is. Nonetheless, it's pretty hard to ignore words 
like this one on the page. I think I have a slide there, Sandra. 1 Corinthians 14, which is part of our reading, verses 33 through to 34. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law also says. Got to be honest, those words taken at face value fall like a sledgehammer in today's society. And I think spoken with the intent we, we assume that they carry, saying those words can land you in an awful lot of trouble in the workplace, in social media, maybe even within the friendships that we have. And so it has been with a great deal of prayer and a little bit, if I have to be honest, a little bit of concern that I've prepared for today. Because while I don't care too much for what other people think of me, I care deeply what the Lord thinks of me and your friendship is very precious to me also. So let's pray together as a church and then I want to read the entire passage that we're going to look at today. Can you stand with me as we pray? And then remain standing if you're able to as we read. Lord, we admit that our way of viewing things in the world often gets distorted. We're fearful of what other people might think of us. Um, We hold things in this world to be very precious. But Lord, I pray that this morning that your voice would come through clear and loud in our hearing. Lord, help us to be a people who love to hear your word. And not only hear it, but as we're encouraged, as we're commanded. Lord, not just hear, but obey. We want to be people who follow your word, who hang off every word that you speak. So Lord, as you speak to us now, humble our hearts, give us ears and hearts to receive what the Spirit will say. In Jesus' name and for his sake and for his glory we pray. Amen. Now if you're able to keep standing, I'd love for you to continue Um, To follow along in your Bibles, we're going to read together 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where we're up to in our passage. We're going to pick up from verse 26. We're going to read through to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. 
For you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophets' spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything is to be done decently and in order. That's the word of the Lord. I want you to take a seat. All right, then. Let's get to what I think this broader passage is actually driving at. I think the problem that we face when we have a passage like this in front of us to deal with, and, and the passage like this includes a couple of verses that shock us, right? That we're not sure what to do with, how to handle. We maybe know what we've been taught or told historically, but we're sort of trying to grapple with that maybe. The problem is, is that we quickly develop tunnel vision. A bit like a 14-year-old girl who discovers her first pimple in the mirror, right? Or 14-year-old boy, for that matter. All they begin to do is see that one, one thing in the reflection, right? It doesn't matter what the rest of the you know, appearance is like at all. All that can be seen is that one pimple. And we're at risk of a very similar syndrome when we face a passage like this today. Rather than taking in the whole passage, asking what is Paul actually talking about here, and then fitting the parts back into the whole, we begin obsessing over one bit and making everything about that one thing. So I think it's helpful here to remind ourselves a little bit of the context. What is it that Paul's been banging on about for about the last three chapters and see if it gives us a little bit of a helpful framework to come to terms with the bits that might be causing you a little bit of concern right now. So for the last three chapters, Paul's sole concern has been the proper use of gifts within the gathered church. Right? That's what he's been talking about, right? For the last three chapters, we spent quite a few weeks in this. Um, chapter 12 dealt with uh, gifts more broadly. Then chapter 13, remember, gave us a better motivation for giftedness. Namely, what is it? Love. And then chapter 14, so far, has been specifically dealing with a couple of the more, let's say, spectacular gifts, 
tongues and prophecy, which Paul says must be governed by how helpful they are in their use to build up the gathered church rather than only build up the person using them. That's what Paul has been talking about so far. So if we can sort of step back from the women be quiet verses for a moment, we begin to see that this passage is very much about the need for order and peace among the gathered church. And that the gathered church should, in fact, reflect something about the one it gathers for. Namely, that God is a God of peace and not a God of chaos. And that's the key for us, I think, in trying to come to terms with how all of this passage fits together. That we use that framework. Paul drives here. Listen, God is a God of peace. A God not of chaos, not of disorder, but a God who longs to bring together and show order and and how things fit and work together well. So that's the key that we need to have in the back of our mind. But I know you're still thinking about those women be silent verses, right? I am. So I want to go and deal with that for a little bit, but I want to do that in a way that, well, let's talk about for a moment what I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean. Okay? Women be silent. Let's call this what it doesn't mean. I'm actually immensely confident that I know what Paul doesn't mean. By women should be silent in the churches. That's his, his quote, right? So I want to try and debunk, I think, the idea for a moment before we try to answer, well, okay, Chris, that's what Paul doesn't mean, but it's still there. What does it mean, right? And we're going to, we're going to get to that, Lord willing. So to do that, I want you to give you two main reasons that I feel pretty confident that I know what Paul doesn't mean. Um, the first reason is simply based on logic and then, but far more importantly, there is a biblical reason why I'm confident that Paul isn't just a chauvinistic pig in religious clothes, which he gets called, right? So here's my first reason based on logic. My first logical reason comes from the fact that Paul just makes a blanket statement here without any qualifiers, right? He simply says that women should be silent for they are not permitted to speak. Now, the words that Paul uses in his own language, the language that he wrote in, um, the word silent... It's not going to help you if, you if you want to sort of try and play with the language a little bit and think, well, he sort of just means this, but not this. The word silent literally means to be marked by absence of sound. All right? Be marked by absence of sound. Women, let's take him literally here. Women are to be marked by absence of sound in the church. So, logically speaking, 
to put Paul's command into literal practice, the only people here who should make any sound at all would be men, right? Only men may pray. Only men may share. Only men may read the Bible aloud. Only men may sing. So to take it further, Paul doesn't specify here about silence from the pulpit or silence from the pew. He just says when the church gathers, if we were to take it literally as, he, as it says right there, marked by absence of sound, then from the moment that you walk through that front door, the only voices that we would sing and pray and read in would be male. Heaven, heaven forbid, all right? <laughs> Now, I don't know any serious Christian church, even the most conservative that I'm aware of, who takes Paul to mean that, right? Even where women have no other public part in the church service, at the very least, they're encouraged to sing loudly. It drowns out our voices, all right? So the very first reason why I'm confident that Paul doesn't mean what we think he means sometimes by reading that is just based on the logic that, that I don't think that's what he has in mind when he talks about silence. But who cares about my logic, really? So let's go to a biblical one, all right? In the scheme of truth and eternity, what the Bible has to say matters far more than what I have to say. What matters most is what God says in his own word. In fact, I'm keen to know what Paul himself says elsewhere in the scripture on this matter and even more so I'm interested to see what Paul says to this very same church remember Paul's actually writing he it's not just sort of some vague command that just sort of appeared one day Paul's writing to a particular group of people gathered in a church yes it was a different time a different country a different culture but in lots of ways a church just like us just people who love Jesus and are trying to figure out what it means to be a disciple And so Paul writes a letter to them. And in that letter, he says those words, right? But is that all he says on the subject to these people? Well, it's not. So back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a few weeks ago, we spent some time looking at the sort of cultural phenomenon of head covering in the church. I'm not going to rehash the main point there, but if you missed it, And you want to go back, you can look at it, it's on our website, you can watch it. The sermon was titled, Does God Really Care What I Wear? In fact, I think I preached it on the 14th of August. You can go back to our website, go through it, you can look it up and and listen to it. But there are a couple of key verses from that chapter that I sort of want to pull back out. I think they shed some light on this whole women must be silent issue. And I want to remind you of them. So here they are, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 5. Have a look at it in your Bible if you can. Just flip back a little bit. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5. Remember, to exactly the same church, the exactly the same people, 
the exact same author, Paul, inspired by exactly the same God, Paul writes this to them. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. Or in verse 16 of the same chapter, he says, If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, in Paul's mind, when the church was gathered together, both men and women should be publicly praying and prophesying. That's what he said. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. He's talking about the church being gathered together in all of these chapters. Now, granted, Paul wants that to be done carefully and with each gender showing proper concern for others gathered, which is what the whole head covering thing was really about. But don't miss the fact that Paul expects that women have a public voice in the church. At the very least, he specifies in two particular ways, through public prayer and through public prophecy, both of which required a woman's voice to be heard in the gathered church. So I'm very confident that Paul means something very different in chapter 14 when he says women must be marked by an absence of sound. How can they do that and also publicly pray and publicly prophesy? Further to this, Paul clearly says that he doesn't have any other custom, nor do any of the other churches of God. So my conclusion, from both my own logic a bit, and more importantly what the Scripture says on this matter, is that whatever Paul does mean by silent, it doesn't mean that women don't have an integral part to play in the public worship of the gathered church. So, men, just tune out for a moment because I want to speak directly to the women. Ladies, women, young girls, young women, we need to hear your voice. We need to hear your voice. Right? Your unique walk as a woman who follows Jesus, your own testimonies of his faithfulness to you as a woman, your perspectives, which are marked by estrogen, (laughs) are vital. They're vital. Your perspective in prayer, your expression of praise are essential, and I use that word very deliberately, they are essential for the health of this church. I would be a lesser man as a follower of Jesus if I don't have the voices of my sisters showing me what it means to walk after Jesus. So we need to hear your voice. Yes, the same could be said about you men, but this is not about you at the moment. So just, all right, sit still for a bit. 
I want the women of this church to know that you are valued, that you are cherished, and that you are a vital part of what it means for Raymond Terrace Community Church to be a healthy church that loves Jesus. Now, it's one thing to be confident in knowing what Paul doesn't mean. It's quite a different thing to be confident in knowing what he does mean. So to try and answer that, we need to stop staring at the pimple in the mirror for a moment, step back and try to take in what else he has been talking about here. And after all my encouraging words to the women here, sorry, it's not really actually all about you either. All right? So let's step back for a moment and consider that we as a church, the church in Corinth, and we as a a type of ongoing expression of a New Testament church in the world today, when we gather, that's what Paul's talking about, right? Gathering. When we gather together, the expression of how we use our gifts, how we worship. We, We come together, the Corinthian church, the church in Raymond Terrace, we come together to worship a God of order. So when the church gathers, it doesn't primarily gather because we're some type of Christian club. I know it can feel like that sometimes, but that's that's not why we gather. It's certainly not because we all like the same style of music, or it shouldn't be. Or it's even because we all hold exactly the same theology, When a church gathers, we gather first and foremost as a very eclectic group of people, um, a disparate group of people, or a scattered group of people, all very different from one another, different experiences, different backgrounds, different stories, but we gather first and foremost as a people around an awesome and holy God. That's why we gather. We gather because no matter what our stories are, what our backgrounds are, no matter what our gender is, no matter what our station in life is, we can, in Christ, walk together up to the table, take the bread, take the cup, and we can do all those things that we're reminded of this morning. It doesn't matter your background, who you are, where you've come from. You've been made new in Christ. And that's why we gather. And that's what Paul's talking about here. So let's zoom all the way out for a moment and try and take in the grandeur of the God that we worship. And we started by having the first reminder read to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was what? Formless, void, Empty darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God, it says, was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, the first recorded words of our awesome God in all of recorded history of this universe are what? Let there be light. 
Right? We have to understand the context here. There is absolute chaos that reigns over whatever was there. It says that there was uh, formless, void, empty, darkness. And God speaks and says, let there be light. And there was light. I love the fact that the Bible doesn't tell us how that happened. I actually think that's the point. We, we spend so much time struggling over how, how did that happen? Now, here's the point. God said something and it happened. There wasn't another choice. It's not like anyone could rebel. It's not like nature could just sort of say, well, I'm not sure about that. I'm not. No, God says, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. The light was good. But then he said he separates the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And then we have this statement. There was an evening. And there was a morning. One day. That's one day. Day one. I love the parallel New Testament verses that that echo Genesis 1.1 and they're found in John chapter 1, verse 1. I read to you the first five verses. We had the first five verses read to us. Here are the first five verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning, sounds familiar, right? Yeah. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things... All things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. Remember, let there be light. That light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness did not overcome it. All right, our entire Bibles lead us to to discover the God, the awesome God of peace that we worship. But even in just those two integral passages, one from Genesis, one from John, we can see that our God is a God who creates order out of chaos. When God speaks, the world has no choice but to listen. When God speaks, The storms of this life have no choice but to fall into calm. Remember that? Do you remember that story of Jesus crossing the lake with his disciples? They all think they're dying. They're experienced fishermen. They've lived their entire lives on the water. They'd seen it so often and they were yet in a position where they were just like, we're not going to live through this one. You ever been in a situation like that? It's not fun. Maybe not on a sea, maybe it's a completely different scenario, but where you honestly couldn't see how you were going to survive this situation. Not like we hear about today, oh, I literally almost died. Like, no, you didn't. (laughs) But some of us have been through experiences where we honestly thought, I'm not going to survive this. That's what the disciples thought. And then, in fact, they looked up at the, the front of the boat and there was Jesus. He was fast asleep. They wake Jesus, 
Don't you care, they say. I mean, he just spent the last couple of years showing how immensely he cared, but in that situation, incredibly frightening, incredibly fearful, don't you care, we are all about to die. And he just looks around him and says, he says, oh, you of little faith. And he simply stood up and what did he say? Peace, be still. How? How did all that happen? I don't know. That's the point. Peace, be still. What happened? It was still. Sounds a bit like, let there be light. And it was light. God is many things. But most relevant to this passage is that our God is a tamer of chaos. Chapter 14, verse 33 of 1 Corinthians. This underlines Paul's logic of what he's been talking about in this whole passage when he says, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So here's a couple of implications for us as a church out of that. And it comes under one big category that I've got in my mind, which says this, how we worship, let me back that up and and emphasize the word again, how we worship should reflect who we worship. All right? How we worship should reflect who we worship. The mystery of the church is that we are not equivalent to God, but nor are we a separate entity to God. What I mean by that is this, the church isn't the same as her head, right? The head of the church is Jesus, but nor are we nothing. We are what? The body of Christ. That's what the church is referred to as. We have a head, it's Jesus, But we are also, remember, we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. So how we worship should reflect who we worship. And since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, then so it should be of His body, the church. That we are a church, not of disorder, but of peace, not of chaos, but of order. And that is exactly the structure of this passage. So when we started reading from verse 26, we read right down to verse 40. Verse 26 starts with this. What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together. All right. Paul's still talking about getting together, isn't he? He's been talking about that for the last three chapters. He's still talking about it. Whenever you come together, each one, each one has a hymn, teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Here's the qualifier. Everything is to be done for what? Building up. We talked a lot about that last week. If you weren't here, you want to go back and check that. Go back. It's on the website as well. Everything is to be done for building up. Right? That's verse 26. Go down and have a look at verse 40. Verse 40. But everything is to be done decently and in order. Right? They're the bookmarks of this little passage. 
We can see everyone coming in. There's different things that are happening. There's teaching, there's hymns, there's revelations, tongues, interpretations. But whatever does happen, it must happen for building up. There's the structure, right? The other bookmark is everything is to be done decently and in order. And smack bang, right in the middle of those two verses, is a statement about God being a God of peace and not disorder. That's in verse 33. So Paul's logic is this. If our gathered worship, and more specifically, I think, in the context of what he has been talking about, how we use our spiritual gifts in the gathered church, if all of that is chaotic, then we are out of alignment with the God that we claim to worship. If chaos reigns in how we meet, then we are out of alignment with the God that we claim to worship. So to put it bluntly, what we do in the hour and a half that we gather for on a Sunday morning matters a lot. Right? Yes, what we do is important. So good theology is essential, right? Both in our preaching, in our singing, obedience to the Lord's command in gathering around the communion table is important. Not showing favoritism to so-called important people matters a lot. But what Paul's talking about here is that, but not only is it what, that we, what we do, Paul says how you do what you do is also important. How we gather, how we sing, how we interact, how we use our gifts, it matters because it reflects something significant about the God that we worship. So what does this mean for tongues and prophecy? And we touched on this last week, so I'm not going to go over old ground again, but I'm sure you can see the relevance of this. Both tongues and prophecy, by their very nature, could, could be practiced in a way that doesn't reflect any form or order. But instead can appear like chaos reigns, right? So Paul puts careful restrictions on their public application in the gathered church. That means that for those with the gift of tongues, that they should primarily, Paul says, practice them as a private expression of worship, primarily. But they should only be practiced publicly in the gathered church if someone is able to interpret. And even then, Paul says, one or two people, in turn... Three at the most, he says. Even for those with the gift of prophecy, which Paul sees as being far more profitable to the building up of the whole church, Paul still says two or three at the most. Each in turn and each willing to allow another to add to or to contribute to what is being offered. And what's important, I think, to see here is that the rest of the church... The rest of the church, it says there, has the responsibility for weighing up what is being said or to evaluate what is being said by these prophets. And this infers that each prophecy, it it isn't inherently on its own terms authoritative, right? 
or binding even. The wider church holds the responsibility to test each thing said against the Word of God and then declare it to be true or not, right? Is this prophetic word or is this thing that's been shared in alignment with the Word of God? There's a sense of authoritatively speaking into that and saying, yes, here it is. They've got to weigh it up. The church is meant to listen and weigh it. So what does that mean for men and women? A little earlier, I spoke directly to the women. Now I want to speak directly to the men. Because I think too often in the discussion about what women can and can't do in the church, men slip under the radar a bit and fail to shoulder the responsibility that is theirs. I'll be honest, for some sovereign reason that remains a mystery to me, God has tasked men to carry the responsibility of giving an account for not only their own spiritual health, but also for those whom God has entrusted into their care. Men seem to have an aversion to that. It started in the garden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and took the very thing that God said, don't take. And then discovered that they were ashamed and naked and hid in the garden, remember? And God came walking, Adam, where are you? I was hiding, I was naked, I was ashamed. Hmm, Adam, who told you you were naked? Did you take the fruit that I told you not to take? Adam's response is very telling. Not long ago, when when God created Eve from taking a rib from Adam's side and forming a companion, one to walk through life with and share life and burden and joy with, to, to enjoy the intimacy of married life together, to have families and, and tend what God had given. When, when, when Adam fell asleep and God took the rib and formed it and then he opened up his eyes, he went, whoa, man, all right? That's where the word woman comes from. Um, dad joke. Um, He said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He was astounded. But when he took the fruit and God said, Adam, why did you take the fruit? His response, the woman you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate. I haven't, it's not my fault. It's the woman, right? Not bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. No, ah, that woman that you gave me. To a certain degree, men, we've been doing that ever since. Men, we we fail, we abdicate our sense of God-given responsibility to love and cherish and lead well. Yet, for some sovereign reason, God still has tasked men to carry the responsibility of giving an account 
Not only for their own life, but for those that have been entrusted into their care. And men, that means that you, you must bear ultimate responsibility for how you nurture and shepherd your family. And that is a heavy weight to carry, I know. It means you must love and cherish those that God has entrusted to you in how you lead them into the presence of God and into truth. And this means that when the public weighing of prophecy takes place or debate is required about what is authoritatively true about who God is and what He desires of us, then men... God expects you to take the lead in that. To to bear responsibility for that. To lovingly and gently and without lording it over anyone or forcing yourself and your views on anybody, especially your wife. God expects you instead to see your wife as an equal stakeholder in the promises of God and commit to learning together with her. And yet you will stand responsible before the Lord, not only for how you do that in your own life, but how you entrust and shepherd that in the lives of those around you. So what does this mean for our church? Maybe you're wondering what this means for us here in Raymond Terrace Community Church. So I need to freely admit that this subject could tear open some old wounds because the church has a pretty checkered history. Broadly, the wider church, there has been a shameful history of treating women as second-rate citizens in the kingdom of God. So our desire here, not just a generalisation, right here, our desire is to be a church where both men and women can find their fullest expression of being a follower of Jesus. That's our desire. And we have got it wrong. We will get it wrong at times. We will do it poorly. We will have to learn. But that's our desire. We are what is broadly known as a complementarian church. Which means that we believe that both women and men are equal in the sight of God. That neither are at any gender-based advantage when it comes to experiencing the grace of God in Christ. However, contrary to our contemporary culture, we wholeheartedly affirm that there is a God-given difference between the genders. That men and women are not the same. And that those differences are not a disadvantage but are in fact a part of God's design in order that both men and women should complement each other. Designed to share life with each other differently, but essentially. So in practice, that means that we hold here to the biblical responsibility of appointed men holding the title of elder slash pastor. Same thing, same title. And ultimately, standing before God to give an account for the spiritual health of this church. 
And a key role of any elder and pastor, as far as the Bible has to say, is that they should have the ability, they should be, have an aptitude to preach in the gathered church. And so that function we see as being primarily a role of an elder or a pastor. But beyond that specific role, we believe in the freedom of each member of this church, whether male or female, to use their gifts to build up the body of Christ. So here's the bottom line. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. We've read it already. The bottom line, what we take away from this, no matter who you are, what gender you are, if you know Jesus today, whether you are 90, 19 or 9, if you love Jesus, if the Spirit of God is in you, you have discovered that your life is a wreck without a saviour. And you've told Jesus that. And you've said, I've got nothing to offer, I've got nothing to add, but Jesus, if you will have me. And he says, I will. Then the bottom line is, what then, brothers and sisters, Whenever you come together, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn. You want to sing a song, then sing a song, right? Some of us are, are wired more towards singing than others. I'm not talking about how tuneful you are. Some people just think lyrically. Something says something. I, I can talk. The person that I'm talking about remain nameless. They might be operating the cameras today. <laughs> I can be talking about something and um, he responds to me with song titles <laughs> or lyrics. He can get them right then. <laughs> so maybe singing's not your thing though. Maybe you don't think in songs and hymns, that's fine. God's wired you up differently. Maybe it's bringing something that you've read through the week in a conversation over coffee or, or as we're here and gathered and there's an opportunity to share something, please, men, women. Look, man, I've got a grandfather, he's gone to be with Jesus now. Good old school brother guy, brethren guy, like I was born and raised multiple generations, Brethren Church and um, man, if he heard me saying this and if he was still in the grave, he'd just roll multiple times probably, but let me tell you, when we have open worship what we're saying is if God has impressed something on your heart not to build yourself up but to build the church up please come and share it do you know what Paul calls that? He calls it prophecy. It doesn't have to be one of those sort of I can see the future type of things or I can tell something's going on. It might be. Maybe it's a word of particular insight or knowledge that, that the Spirit gives you. But more often than not, what it is, is, I, and I hear it all the time, 
I hear it from you all the time as you come up to the mic. You'll say, you know what? God's been really prompting my heart for the last couple of weeks to share this and and I just sort of felt uncomfortable or I was resistant. I can't resist anymore. I really need to read this particular passage. And they might read out one verse or two verses. Why did they pick those verses? I mean, they've got a few to select from. Why those particular ones? Why did the Spirit of God impress on their heart to share those verses to this church on that week? Because He wanted you to hear it. And so, whenever you come together, Paul says, each one has a hymn, or a song, or a praise, or a... Maybe someone has a teaching, someone has a revelation, someone might have a tongue, someone needs to have an interpretation in that case. But whatever happens, everything is to be done for building up. Why? Because God is a God of peace and not chaos. And how we do what we do reflects who we come to worship. And that even involves how men and women engage and lovingly support and encourage one another. And we need help doing that. And as important as the song selection is, or as important as theological teaching is, we cannot underestimate the importance of the ministry of the body. In fact, if it doesn't happen, we become a disabled body. We don't function the way that we ought to necessarily function. And so please, we want to hear your voices. Build up the body. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your patience with us as we muddle through this life of trying to figure out how to follow after you. And sometimes, Lord, we do it in a way that we feel good about ourselves. We think, oh, we're going so strong. And other times we feel like we're barely barely making progress at all and yet I'm grateful that you have not left us as orphans you've given us a comforter and a guide you've given us a teacher someone to remind us of truth so Holy Spirit will you help us as a church to follow after you as we gather in the weeks ahead or whenever it is that we are able to gather Lord may what we do and how we do it reflect the awesomeness of the God that we love and serve. For your sake and for your glory. Amen.